of God's Word and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. We will be looking at the, this passage, probably very uh, familiar to many of you. Uh, John, chapter 20, beginning in verse 19, if you take your copy of God's Word, or if it's on an electronic device, if you would swipe over there and uh, find John, chapter 20. Uh, it's good to be here and good to be have the opportunity to look at this passage. Uh, back in the early part of the 20th century, uh, during the silent movies, I know that's hard to fathom that there were silent movies, but a worldwide star was Charlie Chaplin. Now, some of you remember Charlie Chaplin. Maybe you've seen him on some old film on uh, television or Netflix or such thing. Uh, but Charlie Chaplin uh, was very popular beyond, uh, he was like a superstar, and so around the world, they were doing Charlie Chaplin look-alike contests. And uh, he found out about that. He thought that was kind of strange. So he thought he would uh, enter one of the Charlie Chaplin look-alike contests. You know, everybody would dress up. He would dress like a hobo with a, a funny hat. And so he entered a contest. And uh, I was trying to remember where that was. It was a tramp was his character. And uh, even young Bob Hope at that time entered the contest and won in Cleveland, Ohio at that time. But as Charlie Chaplin took part of this contest, it was in the San Francisco Theater. And you would think people in California would know who Charlie Chaplin was. Well, he entered the contest and he failed to even make the finals. And in a similar way, uh, we fail to recognize the truth about who and what Jesus Christ is and what God has done for us and with us as it even stares us in the face. You know, for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, really every day is Resurrection Sunday. Uh, it is the thing that we look back on and we rejoice in and recognize that as Jesus Christ gained the victory over sin and death, as he rose again from the grave, uh, that for the believer in Jesus Christ, that is our hope. And that is our longing, and that is our position, is what Christ has done for us. But it is easy to get busy in life and to forget uh, some of the details about what occurred during that week back in 33 AD. And uh, so I want to remind us, uh, like a professor I read about one time, that his wife reminded him. He was a classic absent-minded professor. But as he uh, ate his breakfast and left for a day of work, his wife reminded him that they were moving that day and that they were supposed to meet at the new house that evening. Well, sure enough, when he got off work, he went to the old house and it was empty. And he didn't know what was going on. And he, there was a child playing out in the street. And he went out and asked the child if he knew what happened. And the little boy looked at him and said, Mother told me you would forget. And uh, so... Uh, sometimes we are short on memory of these things. The Gospel of John, of course, John is writing for the purpose of presenting Jesus Christ in his deity, the God-man. And John has taken us uh, through uh, his gospel and presented Jesus as the God-man, the Messiah, the one who is the Savior that has been promised from ages past. The Old Testament prophets have promised him. And so we've been confronted with the wonder of who and what Jesus Christ is. But this passage in John 20, it is really evening of that Sunday. Jesus Christ was crucified on a Friday. He, the tomb was empty on Sunday morning, and there were some who saw him. There was Mary Magdalene who went to the, empty, went to the tomb and found it empty, and she went running back to Peter and John, and the body was gone, and she reported to them. And, uh, but she had met Jesus outside the door. And then there were others also. Uh, some other women who were at the tomb saw him and worshipped him. 
And then the two upon the Emmaus Road, where Jesus walked with them, probably Cleopas and his wife. And uh, they came back in breathless excitement to record and report that they had seen the risen Savior. And uh, the word had gone out that Peter had even seen Jesus. And so this is the evening. When we come to John 20, chapter or verse 19, it says, So when it was evening on that day, and that day, of course, is the Resurrection Sunday uh, that we come to. And uh, so it was a great surprise to the followers of Jesus Christ. They could not contain their surprise. And so we can learn many lessons from the events that occurred in that upper room with these, uh, first of all, the 10 disciples, and then finally the 11 as Thomas joins them a week later. Uh, But it says, when it was evening of that day, that day of the week, the doors were shut where the disciples were. And we know why the doors were shut. The implication is that they were locked, too, is because it says they were for fear of the Jews. And the instant they recognized that there was opposition, they knew the great opposition to those who were followers of Jesus Christ. And so the resurrection transforms our fear into rejoicing in verses 19 through 23. We see that they were fearful, that they were gathered together in a locked room, and it tells us that Jesus appears to them. You know, fear is a commonality of life. All of us have been fearful from time to time. Perhaps you're fearful much of the time. I find that usually at 3 a.m. in the morning, in the darkness of the morning, uh, those fears can creep in, whatever they may be, the anxieties of life, of the day. And uh, one writer said that fear is the wrong use of our imagination. It is anticipating the worst, not the best that can happen. Uh, So we need to be aware that fear is a common problem among human beings. And these disciples, these ones who had walked with Jesus, heard him teach and had uh, ate ate with him, traveled the roads of Israel with him, and had seen him do miracles. They were in fear because they had known that Jesus Christ had been crucified and put in a tomb. His body was buried. And so Jesus offers peace. Notice in the text here, when Jesus came and stood in their midst, he said to them, peace be with you. Notice it doesn't say he unlocked the door or knocked at the door. He just appeared in their midst. We get an indicator of what heaven is going to be like or what afterlife is going to be like because Jesus is the forerunner. He is the one in his glorified body. This wasn't a spiritual resurrection. This was a physical resurrection coming back to life as he had predicted. And so Jesus offers them peace. He says, peace be with you. What he's doing is he's self-identifying that he is the peace. Boy, our world needs peace, doesn't it? We need peace in our own personal lives, and we need peace in the lives of our families, in our community, in the area around us, our nation, and it goes on and on, and we recognize it. And Jesus is telling the people, telling these followers that he is the peace. Peace be unto you. Peace be with you. And he was physically demonstrating that he is there. And so Jesus showed proof because they were incredulous. They were surprised about that. And when he said this, he showed them both of his hands and his side. And notice what the disciples did. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. He was recognizable. They knew who he was. And in other accounts, we know that uh, they, they touched him and that he ate physical food. And so he's different, but he's the same in that sense. They recognize who he is. So they rejoiced. And again, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. And then he sends them on a compelling cause. He says, as the Father has sent me, I send you. And so he is the one, the peacemaker, who has brought peace through the Lord Jesus Christ into the earth, and therefore he is uh, sending them on with that same 
thing, that compelling cause that they are to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That's anticipating 50 days from now, from then, it would be the day of Pentecost, and that's the day the church began. When Peter preached his great sermon, the Holy Spirit came down and indwelt the believers of God. And that is the mark of the church age, that every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament believers were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit as a constant or consistent uh, presence of God in our lives. But in the church age, beginning in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, 50 days after this event, the Holy Spirit indwells his people. And so he is essentially saying in that commissioning there, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, uh, there's, they have been retained. And what he is saying there is that the church's responsibility, these apostles, these disciples' responsibility was to share the good news of Jesus Christ, that the peace has come upon them and that there is forgiveness for sins. And if people reject that gospel, their sins are not forgiven them. And so he's telling them that. And so they are encountering the risen Lord, and to the, they are surprised by that. Uh, for many years, we lived near Glacier National Park over in Mon- northwest Montana, and it is one of the most beautiful places on earth. I'm a little bit biased about that. But if we were able to travel over there, and we could uh, go to West Glacier, and then we would go into the park, and you'd go up the highway there, and it's called Going to the Sun Road, which goes over the Continental Divide. We've done it many, many times, and you get, when you get up on top or on the way to the top, an awesome, awesome view of the mountains and the glaciers that are there. And right at the summit, of course, there's a visitor center and a parking area, and you can get out, and you hear people uh, who have been there for the first time, they're going, ooh, ah, look at that, look at that, wow. And it is beautiful, and it's breathtaking. And uh, then they hike up the boardwalk to an overlook, and, uh, of course, there's mountain goats right there. I'm convinced that the mountain goats are union goats because I saw them packing lunch pails, and they had time cards, but they're always there. And so uh, a beautiful, beautiful place. Now, imagine, and I've been up there during this event, too, you drive up to the summit, and it's all clouded in. There's no, you can't see 20 feet in front of you. And you get up there, and there's just thick, gray, soupy clouds and it's probably raining, and uh, you're not uh, able to see any of the beauty or the glory of Glacier National Park while you're there. And that's what happens when we worship without the heart and the recognition of who and what Jesus Christ is. He transforms our fear into rejoicing. The fog of fear and doubt and worry and the problems of the day can block out the view of the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why it's re- important. You know, every year we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. Every year we celebrate Christmas, the coming of the Messiah. And it's to remind us, it's a reminder of what he has done. In verses 24 and 25, we see that the resurrection threatens our unbelief. It threatens our unbelief. Look at verse 24 again. But Thomas, remember, he missed church that first Sunday. He wasn't there. And uh, we don't know where he was. Maybe he was really despondent and discouraged because his Savior had been crucified and then put in the tomb. But Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came in this first event. And uh, so they're trying to tell him. The other disciples are excited. They've seen Jesus. They've experienced this. They've talked to him. They've heard him. And now they're telling Thomas, how exciting is that? You know, that's the message of a believer in Jesus Christ is we've met Jesus. And so we're going to tell others about him. And the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, 
unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger in the place of his nails and put my hand to his side, I will not believe. Quite a statement. You know, Thomas uh, has two names there, if you've noticed. The first one, Thomas, is an Aramaic name. That's a, a cognate language of Hebrew. And Didymus is a Greek, and they both mean twin. They both mean twin. And uh, we don't know who Thomas's twin was, uh, but in those days, names had meaning and uh, in, in a family, so he probably had a twin. We don't know who the twin was. He doesn't show up in history, he or she. But we do know that sometimes perhaps you and I feel like Thomas's twin, don't we? How often have we refused to believe something that God has told us through his word? We've insisted that God prove himself to us. You know, uh, I've been there. I think everybody has been there at some point in their life. And uh, Thomas represents our doubts in times of fear, or even our unbelief, that I will not believe it unless I have some sign that I can believe. Dr. George Sweeting, former president of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, told of an incident that occurred in the 1920s uh, when the Soviets, the communists, took over Russia. And uh, the, a leader, uh, Nikolai Berkerin, was sent to Moscow, from Moscow to Kiev to address an anti-God rally. And for an hour, he abused and he ridiculed Christians and faith in Christ. And it seemed like the whole structure of Christianity and belief was in ruins after he spoke. And then there were questions invited of the crowd. And there was an Orthodox church priest in the front of the crowd there. And he rose as if he was going to ask a question, but he turned and faced the people, and he gave the Easter greeting that you just did. He said, he is risen, and instantly the whole crowd rose to its feet and replied loud and clear, he is risen indeed. No matter what our world political system looks like, no matter how many anti-God rallies there are, because we, if you are not aware of it, we live in an anti-Christian, anti-Jesus Christ environment and yet we can still declare with confidence, yes, he is risen indeed. And so for Thomas, in fact, we call him Doubting Thomas over the centuries. And, uh, but that's really not uh, a good description of him because Jesus later does not rebuke Thomas for his doubt. He rebukes him for his unbelief. He said, do not be faithless, but be faith, but be believing. You know, the problem and the difference between doubting and not believing is doubting is an intellectual problem. It's simply an intellectual problem where unbelief uh, is a moral problem. It is a mis mistaken thinking about who and what God has revealed to us what he says he is. And so doubting Thomas was really unbelieving Thomas at this point. And so the resurrection threatens our unbelief. And this is what is going to happen to Thomas as we will see in a moment. The resurrection ties us to God's love in verses 26 and 29. And here we get the rest of the story. Eight days later, he says, so this is a full week later, Thomas decides to go to church. And he shows up, and the disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. And the doors again were shut. They were probably still locked. The implication is the doors to this room, wherever it was in Jerusalem, were shut and locked. Jesus came in, and again he repeats, peace be with you. In other words, he is the object and the one who gives us peace. And then he said to Thomas, notice, I can imagine Jesus looking over with those eyes, penetratingly looking at Thomas, calling him by name and saying, Thomas, reach here with your finger, see my hands, 
reach here with your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but be believing. And so we see that Jesus offers us peace. He challenges us to personal belief. Earlier, Jesus had asked the disciples, who do the people say I am? And they responded in various ways. But then he said, who do you say that I am? And it's that personal uh, challenge to what do we believe and why do we believe it? And so Thomas's response, he says, my Lord and my God. It's the high point of the gospel. Here is a skeptical man. Here is one who was not believing unless he had proof and he was confronted by the evidence of Jesus's resurrection. He announced that this man, this God-man, Jesus of Galilee, was manifest in the flesh. Thus, the truths of the gospel of John come into good focus through this event. The resurrection demonstrates that what Jesus predicted about who and what he said he is was true. It proved that Jesus is the Son of God when he told, when Thomas said, the Lord, my Lord and my God. It testified to the success of his mission of salvation. The resurrection entitled Jesus to a position of glory, and he was proclaimed as Lord. In other words, the sovereign over all things. And so Jesus had shown him his scars, his wounds, still on his hands and his side, and of course his feet also, even though John doesn't reference that. But the question is, is why didn't God fix him up? This is the glorified body of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet he still has the wounds. It is staggering to me that uh, Jesus still has his glorified body. Remember, God is, is spirit. He doesn't have a what we call physical body, but Jesus Christ does because he physically rose from the dead, and he reigns at the right hand of the throne of the Father. He intercedes for us. He's our intercessor. He's our advocate. He is the one who challenges Satan when Satan accuses us. He is called the great accuser. And so Jesus Christ has paid it all. So why didn't, in the process of resurrection, didn't all those wounds disappear? Have you ever thought about that? The, the wounds from the nails in his hands and the spears thrust in his side as it's recorded in the crucifixion. And uh, somehow we must understand that the resurrected Christ is the forever wounded Christ. I've often said many times before, the only evidence of our sin in heaven will be the nail prints in his hands, those wounds, and the wound in his side and feet. You know, I've been told that those who are hearing impaired have a sign for the risen Christ. They make a sign with their middle finger on each palm, referencing the scars of our Savior, those wounds in his hands for us. So the resurrection ties us to the love of God. And fourthly, uh, the resurrection transports us from death to life, from death to life. Uh, Thomas said, my Lord, my God. But Jesus said in verse 29, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. If you're a believer today in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've believed in him for everlasting life. You are referenced in that verse because Jesus is saying, Thomas, you saw me. You believe that's great but there are many coming after who will not see me. We have not seen the risen Lord as these disciples saw him. And yet if you believed in Jesus Christ, you have believed and you are called blessed. You are blessed. This is a beatitude. Uh, it's a blessing that he gives out. And so in verse 30, therefore, John is writing here, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. John only focuses on eight signs. A sign is an event which points 
to the de- deity of Jesus Christ. A sign is like a sign on the freeway. It's not your destination, but it tells you where your destination is. And when Jesus did miracles, it wasn't simply a sideshow, but it was to prove that he is the God-man, the Messiah. And John recorded eight, those eight signs. The first one was he turned water into wine at the, at the wedding at Cana, John 2. He healed a nobleman's son, John 4. He healed the man at the pool of Bethsaida in John 5. Jesus fed the 5,000 in John 6. He walked on water, John 6 again. He healed the man born blind, John 9. He raised Lazarus from the dead, John 11 and 12. And the eighth sign is he died and rose again from the dead here in chapter 18 through 21. And so John records those eight signs, but he records, says that not everything was written down in this book. And then in verse 31, he gives us his purpose for writing. Look at this purpose. But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Did you know that John is written to people who don't know Jesus as their Savior? It's the only book in the New Testament which is basically a gospel tract. If you are here and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, I would exhort you, encourage you uh, to read the Gospel of John. Read it through as many times as you can. And really come to the critical point of saying, do I believe what this says? Do I believe this about this historical man that lived a long time ago? You know, there is objective truth and then there are preferences. We live in a day and age where everybody says truth is fluid. Uh, But, for example, if I held up a jar full of marbles and said, what is the right number of marbles in that jar, and had everybody write down their estimation or their guess, uh, we would have lots of different uh, numbers, wouldn't we? But if I poured them out and we counted them and there were 188 marbles, we would say the right number would be the closest number, closest estimate. Somebody might hit it on the nose, but it's very objective. But if I passed out a candy of different flavors, and I would say, what is the right flavor? And everybody would have an argument about, this is, I like this flavor, I like cherry, oh, I like licorice. I, you know, it's all preference, isn't it? Well, you have to deal with the objective truth of the resurrection. If you are a skeptic here today, you have to deal with the historical truth of the empty tomb. That is objective reality. There's not 189 marbles. There's not 165 marbles. There's 188. And the empty tomb is the objective reality historically that you have to deal with if you are skeptical about Jesus Christ. Uh, In our house, in our basement, we have a treadmill, and many of you have treadmills for wintertime. And uh, a great place to hang laundry, as the joke goes. Uh, But uh, if you want to get a little exercise, it's a good way to do it, especially on adverse weather days. Unfortunately, for many people, and maybe you've been there, uh, religion and church seems like running on a treadmill. You feel like you're working hard but getting nowhere. And it's a good image for one way to approach the Christian life, to approach religion and church, especially if you consider the history of the treadmill. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but a man named Fitzpatrick wrote the history of the treadmill, where it uh, sourced out of. It came out of Victorian England, and treadmills in Victorian England were not found in health clubs or in people's homes. They were found in prisons. Treadmills, or they were called tread wheels, as they were called, were used in penal servitude 
as a form of punishment. Some tread wheels were productive, grinding wheat or transporting water, but others were just purely punitive in nature. Prisoners were punished by spending the bulk of their day walking up an inclined plane, knowing that all of their hard labor was for nothing. The only hope the prisoner had was that at some day in the future he would have paid his debt to society and he would be set free. He couldn't even look at his labor at the end of the day and know that if nothing else he had been productive. It was a grinding environment. And so as we struggle with sin in our lives, with approaching church, religion, Christianity as uh, something like a treadmill, remember that what Jesus Christ has done here has set us free on Resurrection Sunday. We are no longer sentenced and chained to the treadmill of sin and failure. He has paid the ransom. He said, paid in full to Telestai on the cross. And he's demanded your release from your sin. You're now walking in freedom to the glory of what Christ is to who and what he is. So don't be on the treadmill of religion. It's punitive. It is grace, unmerited favor that God has given to us, and Jesus Christ has taken our sins upon himself. Evangelist Billy Graham, who passed away last uh, year ago, February in 2018, he was 99 years old. And uh, I read a story about him, and in the year 2000, he was invited to a, by the leaders of Charlotte, North Carolina. They invited, he was their favorite son, of course, to a luncheon, and initially he hesitated to accept the invitation because he struggled, as even at that time, with Parkinson's disease. Uh, but the Charlotte leaders told him, we don't expect a major address, so just come so we can honor you, and so he agreed to go. After the wonderful things were said about him, about uh, various presenters at that luncheon, uh, Billy Graham stepped up to the rostrum and looked at the crowd and said, today I'm reminded of Albert Einstein. The great physicist who this month had been honored, that month in 2000, had been honored as man of the century. Uh, Einstein was once traveling from Princeton uh, on a train uh, when the conductor came down the aisle punching the train tickets <clears throat> of each passenger. And when he came to Einstein, Einstein reached into his vest pocket, reached into his pockets. He couldn't find his ticket. And he looked in his briefcase, but he couldn't find it. And Billy Graham goes on to say, uh, then he looked under the seat. He couldn't find it. The conductor said, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. We all know who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. And Einstein nodded appreciatively, it is reported. And then the conductor continued on down the aisle, punching tickets, and he happened to look back, and he saw that the great physicist was down on his hands and knees looking under the seat and all over for his ticket. And the conductor rushed back and said, Dr. Einstein, don't worry. I know who you are. No problem. You don't need a ticket. I'm sure you bought one. Einstein looked up at the conductor and said, young man, I too know who I am, but I just don't know where I'm going. <laughs> and uh, Billy Graham continued using that illustration. He said, see this suit I am wearing. It's a brand new suit. My wife and my children and my grandchildren are telling me I've gotten a little slovenly in my old age. So I went out and bought a new suit, tried to be a little bit more fastidious in my appearance. And I bought this suit for this luncheon and for one more occasion. And he said, you know what that occasion is? This suit in which I will be buried in is this suit. And when you hear that I'm dead, I don't want you to immediately remember the suit I'm wearing. I want you to remember this. I not only know who I am, but I know where I'm going. And so on this Resurrection Sunday, I know you know where, who you are, but do you know where you're going? Remember the purpose of the Gospel of John. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ 
the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. When I look at consequences that are detailed in Scripture, I look at the conditions to receive or avoid the consequence. (laughs) Because there's always a condition. And the condition here, as in John 3.16 and many other places, is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life. That is the condition. So I challenge you today to know where you're going and don't enter a contest where you will, for yourself where you will not be recognized, but know that you belong to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your loving kindness, and I thank you for each one here today. And Lord, I pray that you would use your word in each one of our lives to grow us in Christ. And if anyone here does not know you as their Savior and never believed in you for everlasting life, I pray that they would have their eyes open today to the wonder and the beauty of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. For it's in his precious and powerful name I pray. Amen and amen. Amen. Won't you please stand so we can sing together.